Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church, and everyone else who is joining us today. Um, What a wonderful occasion both to meet and hear the Lord's word to us, but also what we were able to enjoy and celebrate this morning in the baptism of Jack Nilsson and the affirmation of faith of both Kelly and Nathan Diffley. Um, we, We rejoice because it's an occasion for us to look and see that God is real, like he's actually changing people's lives. Jack was once a sinner. He still is, but this time he's gotten his, God has got a hold of his heart and changed him. That is a cause for rejoicing, for us to say thank you, God, for saving people like me, knowing that your grace reaches into the depths of sinners' hearts to transform them. Uh, this is an occasion for, for rejoicing. So we're, we're glad for those that are both uh, members and uh, welcome to so many that are uh, new as well. And that silly camera on the back, those that are at home today, we miss you. We love you, have not forgotten you. We pray regularly for you, and we long for the day that you will be able to join us here together in full fellowship as well. Let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 6. Look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. We will read our passage, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer together. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. This is God's word. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord God, we come before you in your presence. For the blood of Jesus Christ, we have boldness and confidence that you will do what you have said to do. You have shown us, even in the baptism of Jack Nelson this morning, and the affirmation of faith, the testimony of Kelly and Nathan, that Lord, you save sinners. We rejoice in this great goodness because it makes us glad to know that you and your works have saved and rescued us. God, in this time, as we open up your word, we don't want it to be something that is just another thing to do, but rather we want your Holy Spirit to come and work through the preaching of the word. Oh God, we beg of you to work in our hearts. May this not be human striving, but rather the spirit-empowered work of you who's continuing to go forth and show your people who you are and call them to utter joy. Lord, we come to your word with confidence, but we also come to it with reverence. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we look to it. It's truth, it's powerful, it's clear, and yet it's authoritative and condescends to our station. Lord, I ask that you would give us your empowering presence so that we might understand and obey. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I'll start with a question today. 
Uh, who do you work for? Uh, simple question in one sense. Uh, I've answered this many ways over the past years. Who do you work for? Uh, I can remember early in my life working for some small companies, um, working for some individuals, working for some big companies. Uh, I did anything from installing chain link fence to doing deck work to working on credit card collections. That was really fun. Um, to doing a musculoskeletal technician at LifeNet and uh, to doing other things in resource management. And then there's some times where I worked for an individual, you know, where I'd work for, um, I can remember a specific man in my church that I would go over there twice a week and I would work on doing mulch in his yard or power washing his deck or whatever. But he was my, in a sense, boss and I worked for him. It's probably true that you can look back over your life and think of many different people that you have worked for. I can remember one time, uh, kind of a strange job. I worked going up to the city of New York and going into a specific yard that was all chain linked off. And I was working for the power company because they were finished up with their trucks. And once it like got to the end of their lifetime, their inventory, they would auction it off. Well, they had to have all of their identifications scraped off or painted off. So one of my jobs that was fun was to scrape off all these different stickers and identification marks. And that was a job. And I worked for, in a sense, then, this power company for a short time to help them out. Now, when I think about my own job now, uh, especially as my kids try to think about my job, the question, who do you work for, is kind of a funny one. Right? I, I've heard some conversations between uh, pastors and their kids before, and the kids are saying, like, who, Daddy, who, who, who do you work for? Like, is it for God? And, and they're theologians, right? So it's like, is it for Jesus? Is it for the Holy Spirit? Is it for the elders? Is it for, you know, like, who do you work for? And, and then the one that really puzzles them is, who pays you? Like, how does this happen? Like, is that like when that plate gets passed around you and the elders just go back and divvy it all up? Is that how this happens? Or what's going on? Like, who do you work for and who pays you? Um, it's kind of a funny question, but it helps us to think about who we work for. We each have different answers to that, right? Some of us have a very specific direct boss that we know that we work for them. And then others may work in a different field where we have several different people we work for. And in a sense, we probably work for ourselves as well. But in each situation, we know that there's usually several layers to that working for someone. For instance, you know, in the United States Navy, you work for a direct report. You answer to someone directly. But of course, there's someone above them. And of course, there's someone above them. And when you start to pull back, you realize that you work for the United States government. You work for the President of the United States. And at the highest level, in one sense, you work for us, the citizens of the United States of America. But most of us don't really think that way, especially since uh, I'm not asking you to give me your reports. You guys that are in the Navy, I don't ask for those things. I don't tell you specific tasks to do. You usually answer to someone very specifically who's above you in rank. Um, but we all work for someone or some people or some group in some way or even for ourselves. But I start with this question because Paul is going to address the relationship between workers and their bosses. That's what his, he's coming to today. In other words, he says, between bondservants and masters. But before the end of our time, we are going to really understand that we ought to be asking this question I started with. Who do I work for? Believe it or not, it doesn't matter who pays your wages. It doesn't matter if you're bond or free. If you work for a big company or if you work at home as a housewife working at the administration of the home. Understanding all these things and underlying them and Paul's command to the bond service and masters is the understanding that all work 
is directed to the highest authority in the universe. It's not just to the United States government. It's not just to those in, uh, that are the citizens. We're talking about something that's bigger than all of that. Today, we're going to see that the service that we provide, the good that we do, will ultimately be judged by God himself. This is good news for the Christian, actually, if we will listen and obey Paul's words. Today, what we're going to do is finish up with the household code. We've been working on it for this past couple weeks. We've looked at the relationship between the husband and the wife. We've looked at the relationship between children and their parents. And now we come to this one, between bondservant and master. And as we begin, we need to acknowledge that this language in this passage is distracting for us, right? We're not used to this language. Let's start in verse 5. He says, bondservants, obey your masters. There's a great difficulty right from the beginning here because we live in a free labor society. We don't have bondservants or we don't have indentured servants or slaves in any way. I mean, we are modern Americans. We're disgusted by slavery and any form of servitude wherein a person is bound to another person to do whatever they say to do. To, to us, it's, it's really unthinkable. Even though we have read and understand that that was part of our history, to us, we look back on that from a, a highly superior moral ground, realizing that there has been the abolishment of slavery. And in this, we rejoice. And it's a good thing, the dignity of man the respect for the image of God in all people. This is a wonderful thing, and we're glad. But even in, as we think about it, it's really unthinkable for us to, to talk about this in these terms. Our own historical context gives us the transatlantic slave trade from West Africa. Awful. And we've read the American history books. We've seen the horrific pictures and heard the stories. And as Christians, we rightly stand for a free society, free from chattel slavery as we know it, is abolished, we rejoice that men and women, of course, can operate and work freely in this country. It's a very good thing. We rejoice at the abolition of slavery. All people are to be treated with respect because they are made in the image of God. But even when slavery is abolished, there are certain problems that do not go away. And I'm not talking about racism, well, that's a certainly a good topic to talk about. I'm talking about the universal problems that all sinful human beings have within the worker and the boss situation. All the different things that flow out of this. I'm talking about masters who still abuse their own authority on their people. I'm talking about workers who effectively steal time and effort and resources from their employers. These problems have existed before slavery and they will continue after it. As we read our passage today, we're going to notice that Paul is getting at an underlying human problem in every boss and worker relationship. To understand Paul here, we're going to have to move back a little bit and consider all of these relationships within the household code. Uh, we've started, of course, by starting back up in verse 18 of chapter 5. If you remember that, I referenced it last week specifically, that he is telling us that we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he kind of shows us what that looks like. For instance, this morning, we sang to one another, speaking, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We praised the Lord with our mouths. We even thanked God. But then in verse 21, he says the last thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. After that verse, he's going to start into the household code. Ephesians 5.22, all the way through 6.9, if you're looking on. He shows us in real relationships within each household what it looks like for believers to submit to one another. 
And, and I want you to think about this. By their very designations, by the fact that he's talking about these roles, he is showing us that these roles are important. We start to realize that when he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's not talking about some sort of all-encompassing everyone's just submitting to everybody else all the time. He is actually going to show us God-ordained roles that matter. These things proclaim who God is, and I'll, I'll show you that in a moment here. Paul's not destroying the structural relationship norms of society. Jesus didn't come to overturn or abolish relationship roles, but rather to show us their true significance, to bring them under the lordship of Christ and to proclaim the lordship of Jesus over all things. We're kind of getting close to the end of Ephesians, but if you remember as we start at the beginning of Ephesians, we saw that this was going to be true, that he is working all things to be, bring all things under Jesus Christ. We are seeing inklings of that, even how he helps us understand these relationships that we are part of. Rather than tearing down these distinct roles that each person plays in these relationships, he is reclaiming them for the creator. And also he's heightening their significance by means of tying them to our relationship with Christ, our Lord, our master. Instead of doing away with these God-given structures, we are to embrace them wholeheartedly. Now, we might ask, why? Well, because they are good. Now, you and I have lived in this celestial ball for a little time, and we understand that these things can obviously breed many problems. But he says that they're good. So let me say this. When they are done properly, they reflect the truth of God's creation design. When they are done properly, they work. When they are done properly, each believer actually obeys the Lord. And when they're done properly, each believer proclaims the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. So we should be asking, Chris, you started each of those sentences with that one phrase, when they do it properly, how do we do it properly? Well, that's what Paul has been telling us in this household code. He's been showing us what it means to submit to one another in the roles that God has placed us in. He's not only giving us practical helps for living, he's not only motivating us to stick to the plan that God has set out for us, he is giving us apostolic teaching on how to submit as a Christian in the role that God has placed you in. Think about it. Some of us are husbands. Some of us are wives. Some of us are parents. Some of us are children. Some of us are masters or a boss in some way. And some of us are workers in some way or servants. But the power of the Holy Spirit, but by his power, and with the instruction that Paul gives, we have all that we need to properly submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let me go back and think this through. Ready? If we're filled by the Holy Spirit and we follow Paul's instructions, then we reflect the truth of God's design for creation. In other words, in, in the parent and child relationship, in the worker and the boss relationship, in the husband and wife relationship, we get a glimpse of God's design for all of creation. Even things that we can't see with our own eyes. We're going to come to that actually as soon as we're done with the household code. He's going to tell us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but these principalities and powers. And he's helping us understand there's things that we cannot see with our natural eyes that are going on. These are all ordered things. We get a glimpse in these relationships of roles and how God has placed us in what we are actually seeing in all of the universe. So also, when, he, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and obey Paul's instructions, there's another thing. They work. Marriages actually succeed. 
children grow up to be civil, mature adults. And businesses that include both the laborer and the boss flourish and thrive. Not, more, not only that, each believer obeys the Lord. Think about this, when we obey the Lord in this way and obey Paul's call for these instructions specific in our roles and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we understand our place of obedience within real time and space. All of our roles start to click and make sense as unto the Lord. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and obey Paul's instructions for these roles, each believer, get this, each believer proclaims the lordship of Christ in all things through his life. Through, in the way he interacts in this relationship, he proclaims that. So this really is, this way of thinking about it is the foundation for understanding each of these roles. And, and I say this this morning, and I, I just want to, I don't say this word very often, but this is doctrine, and it's important, and you need to know it. And not only do you need to know it, you need to believe it. It is for your good. The world would have us think that, well, that's your value over there, and I have a different value over here. These words have been given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through holy men, through Paul writing these things, by the inspiration of God. This truth has been delivered to us. We don't take any, uh, how do I say it, clout or uh, pride in the fact that we got the answers. Rather, the scriptures show us instead that we are to be humble and to understand God's great goodness. But that doesn't change the fact that we can be sure that this is true. I say that because our modern culture wants to erase these lines, wants to destroy these roles. And why would that be? Well, we understand that the abuse of power wreaks havoc on people. We understand that unbridled authority can crush people. If you think about this, though, I, I don't want you to think as though the world knows everything. Those who are unbelievers, they did not invent structural roles in relationships. They have no power to make them better than they were designed to be by God. They are not smarter than God. They can't reinvent a new relationship structure that will improve on the human condition. That won't change it. We as Christians who believe the word of God actually know what the problem is. It's not the subordinate relationship. That's not the problem. We know what the problem is. It's sin. It's rebellion against God. Sin has drastically changed and harmed all three of these relationships. These household relationships that we've talked about. In each one of them, we can see the massive abuse of power. And it's, it's, it rears its ugly head and leaves destruction in its path. Think for a minute about bosses. You've got bosses or masters who abuse or mistreat their employees for their own gain. They're greedy control freaks. And then you've got parents who take, care, uh, take advantage of their children, whether by the horrors of physical abuse or by vicariously shoving it down the kids' throats to do the things that they have always wanted to do and make them do these things. They're selfish and domineering. And you have these husbands who physically abuse their wives or verbally berate them to the point that the wife is dehumanized we see and understand that they're violent egomaniacs. We underestimate the power and the pervasive effect of sin on our world. It hasn't happened only on the surface level. It's deeply entrenched all throughout the world. Our structures, our understanding of how things are supposed to work. It has wrecked these relationships to the point that it seems best that we should simply do away with these relationships altogether. Maybe it would be better to move our society away from any subordinate relationships at all. 
I mean, that sounds good when we know the vast evil that is, that is caught up in them. But Paul doesn't say that. That's not what Paul's doing in these passages. From what we've learned about these relationships, Paul actually is saying the exact opposite of that. To reject these roles or to deny these subordinate relationships is an attack on the very design of God's universe and creation. We may uh, think that this is, you know, we may not think about it this way, but if we're to adopt that thing where we want to get rid of these subordinate relationships, it is a suppression of the truth. It's really awful, and it will, it's us willingly covering up what was meant to proclaim and display the relationship between God and his people. Therefore, we must never abandon these roles that we've been talking about. This isn't something you can either take or leave. He shows that this is woven into the very fabric of the universe and that it is right for Christians to hold these things dear and for us to say, no, 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 it's not supposed to be done the way that you're talking about. This is the way that it's supposed to be done. And authority and submission is good. Why? Because God says so. Not only that, but it works. Not only that, it proclaims the relationship between him and his people. It's with this view of submission that we enter into the discussion then about bond servants and masters. And before we read, I think it's important for us to see that Paul isn't strictly talking about people that are indentured or are bound to their masters for one reason or another. I mean, that's definitely his primary audience, but he is speaking to the relationship that exists, whether slavery is present or not. Uh, He is addressing both sides of a work relationship. He's addressing bosses and he's addressing workers. Those who have been given authority, no surprise here, if you've been following along this whole time, and those who are to submit to that authority. That's what he's talking about here. This is a relation that Paul sees as normal, as natural, and as designed by God. And as we'll see, this is a major structure that we need to understand if we are going to make sense of our relation to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master. If you've read your New Testament, you have come across the fact that Paul and many others will say that they are the bondservant or slave of Christ. And he calls us as Christians, those who are slaves of Christ, those who are servants of him. We read a passage this morning that showed this beautifully, that even Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. We realize that this structure is very important for us to understand our relation to God. Let's go ahead then and start from the beginning. Look at verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, in these directions, we don't get a definition for obedience. Paul told the kids last week to obey their parents. And if I'd asked any of the kids, they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. Obedience is doing what you are told, following instructions. When someone asks you to do something, you grant them their request. This command then, the command to obey your masters, isn't actually earth-shattering. If you consider this in the time period, it's pretty normal. Actually, uh, governors, wise sages, philosophers, and kings, they command servants to obey their masters all the time. There's record of this very thing happening. They're saying, do what you're told. It works out best that way. Okay, so Paul's command is not unique because he tells them to obey. It's unique because he requires them to obey in a different way than anyone else does. In these verses, Paul gives Christians a new ethic for our work. But as he goes on, we realize that he also gives us a new perspective on our work. 
These are the two points I want to show us in these next four verses, that there's a Christian ethic in work that he's giving us, and then a Christian perspective. Let's start with the Christian ethic. No longer are Christians to work as our unbelieving neighbors do, with minimal effort to accomplish the things that are required of us, like just get the job done. No longer are we to continue with that, the minimal effort, or we're not to continue on trying to do things so that people will see us and get the master's attention and receive an earthly reward. We have a new ethic, one of integrity and reverence. Look at verses five through seven again. Right at the beginning, he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This is an attitude, you can imagine, of reverence, of awe. It's a matter of honor and respect for those that are in the position of authority over us in our employment. They have been given authority, and it is our duty to respond to them, to this authority, with reverence, as they have been given this position of authority by God. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one that really struggles with this. I have had some pretty crummy bosses over the years, some that I would not recommend to anyone to be a friend, and certainly not a boss, and certainly not a role model. I've had a hard time in my lifetime, for sure, actually working and obeying them with fear and trembling. That is a high and difficult call. And yet we hear Paul tell us to do it. I've, I've worked for some annoying and selfish and bad bosses. I'm sure that you have as well. And despite their character and performance, Paul tells us to obey them with reverence and awe. Oh, this is difficult to do. So I'll ask you. I want you to think about your own relationships with your bosses or masters. Do you obey your bosses with fear and trembling? If you're answering God right now, he asks you this question, how do you answer? We have to do this. He goes on to verse 5. He says, with a sincere heart. Now this is kind of a shortcut way of saying that a person's actions shouldn't be lies. What I mean is they aren't doing tasks just to impress others or get their eye. They have pure motives. Uh, it describes a person really who works with integrity. They're willing to do what they've been told to do. And Paul tells them that we and us, that we ought to be ones who do work out of a sincere heart. Again, I'll ask us the question, how often are you obeying your employer from the heart? Are you sincere in your work? Are you willing to do the things that you've been told to do and are ready to do those things as best that you can, to do them well? What is your attitude in the work that you are told to complete? Now, this doesn't mean that you have to always whistle, whistle while you work, while you're doing everything and be so happy that you're doing this terrible job. That's not the point. He is calling us to a sincere heart that is willing to do the job that we've been called to do. How's your attitude in that? Again, I'm not trying to be silly and paste a smile on your face. I'm trying to say, are you obeying from the heart and doing these things willingly to your best uh, efforts? Does this describe the way that you and I work? He goes on, though, again, and this time he gives us a comparison. Look what he says. It's kind of an example of what our obedience to earthly matters should look like. He says this in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Uh, as you would Christ, Paul is saying that the way we are to obey our earthly masters should look like the way we obey Christ. That is a high standard. That the way, Paul's basically saying, okay, you know, like if, you're, if your boss was Jesus doing the jobs that you're doing day in, day out, how would you respond and obey to him? 
And all of us would rightly say, uh, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. And he's like, yeah, that's the point. You and I are to respond that way to our earthly masters, that we are to do our work well with sincerity of heart. The apostle says it's exactly how a Christian is to obey his earthly master. And I'm just, I'm just making the observation, wow, this obedience is intense. But he goes on, there's more. Look at verse six. He says, not by way of eye service as man or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Hmm, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, we've already just seen that we're supposed to obey our masters with a sincere heart, but now he adds this kind of obedience that is actually the will of God, he says. Now, we've heard that somewhere before. If you remember, just recently in 517, he told us to understand what the will of the Lord is. Guess what, guys? Here it is, that we're to obey our masters and do good work. He's shown us right here. But what is all this stuff about eye service and being uh, people pleasers? Paul says that our work in obedience should never be proportionate to the times that the leadership shows up to watch what we are doing. This idea of eye service. We don't see this term used very often, but we, uh, we're pretty familiar with it. We know what he's talking about here. There have been times where I have worked one way in front of a boss or those who were over me, and as they went away, I worked differently. I don't think I'm alone here in understanding that there's sometimes where we work a certain way when people are around and a different way when they're not around. Paul is rejecting that. He's saying this is not the way a Christian should work. I know that myself, oftentimes, there have been times where I was tempted to, and perhaps even did in some ways, to pad my own numbers, to kind of show the reports that I wanted to show, and not the stuff that I wasn't doing very well at. Or for myself to always kind of paint myself in the right light, so that the boss or whoever was over top of me was seeing that I was acting good and I was doing a good job. But Paul says here, don't work to be seen by men. And then he adds this, don't work to please men. Instead, we are to work as though we were servants of Christ. And then the idea is simply to please Christ, not men. I'll go back if you weren't listening. That's okay. Paul says, don't be working to be seen by men. But he says one thing more. Listen again. He says, don't be working to please men. He says something different. Look at what he says here. Instead, we are to work as though we were servants of Christ. The idea is that we would please Christ, not men. And this is exactly what he says here. And now we have heard it, the same thing actually twice. In verse 5, he said, as you obey as you would Christ. And now in verse 6, he tells us not to please men, but to work as bond servants of Christ. He goes even further to describe this ethic. Look at verse 7. He says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now, I'll just be honest. I don't really like this translation. I think that we don't use the word a good will very often and well. We think of that as the store down the road that once we're done with our pants and shirts, we go and we don't eat them there. That's not what he's talking about here. He is talking about willingness. He's talking about being willing to do these things. So if I can just give you maybe a, a, a simpler translation that might be helpful, hear this. We are to be serving our earthly masters willingly in a way that is as if it was directed to the Lord and not to man. So first we see that our service is not to be that which is against our own will or volition, again, as though we're being insincere. 
we're to be sincerely and willingly do our work for our bosses. But second, we're to be doing it as if it were directed to the Lord. This is the third time in these verses he's already directed us back to our heavenly master. Look at that. We've seen it in verse 5 and 6 and 7. By this point, if you're a Bible reader and a student, you've got to start asking yourself this question. Is there a bigger point here? Is he trying to get to something else? I mean, this is an awful lot of comparison just to give us an example of how hard and diligently we should obey and work for our earthly bosses. So I'm asking you the question, is it possible that Paul is not simply telling us to use our obedience to Christ as an example for how we're to obey our earthly bosses? I think so. I think that's exactly what he's trying to do. I think this whole section is declaring that our work on earth for our earthly masters is our obedience to God. Look at verse 8 to prove it. This is not my thoughts only. It's not speculation. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, knowing that whatever, God, oh, sorry, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Uh, Paul isn't only giving us a Christian work ethic, although we've seen that very clearly. He is also giving us a brand new perspective of our work. So let's talk about a Christian perspective of work. The fact that Jesus is our Lord and Master is not only an example for us to use when we think about how we ought to obey our earthly masters, Paul is saying something even more revolutionary than that. He says that Christians know what, I'm sorry, that Christians know that whatever good service they do will be rewarded by the Lord of heaven. Christians know that what they do in their work is ultimately about serving God. It doesn't matter if someone's a bondservant or if they live and work in a free labor society. That's not the point here. So you can say, well, I don't fit in this category. No, no, no. He even says here, it doesn't matter if you're bond or free. The point Paul is making is that a person's work is ultimately judged by God. So now we can ask that question that we started with. Who do you work for? For the Christian, it should be a no-brainer. It should be pretty simple. I work for the Lord, the one who sees all, the one who will bring rewards on that day and the end when I stand before him. It's the Lord that you work for. And I'll just, I'll just make a point here. That isn't separated from the real life bosses and masters that we have. That's actually his whole point in this whole household code. It's not separated as though, hey, I'll kind of obey you most of the time, but like I really obey the Lord, you know, so I don't have to move those boxes from this, this side of the room to that side of the room. No, 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 no. He is saying willingly you obey this earthly master and in that obedience, you are obeying Christ. We have to see this, guys, because our work is meaningful. It matters the way that we treat our nine to fives or our eight to fours, or maybe you work like crazy hours. All that stuff matters because it is meant to be to the Lord, not just to render service to the people that are around us. At this point, I just want to pause, and I want you to consider how most of us compartmentalize our lives. All right, so I want you to think about a pie or a pie chart, big circle. And if you know what I mean, if you had a pizza, if you've had a, a, a delicious apple pie, you know that you cut up into slices, right? So consider a big circle and all these different parts, and that represents your life. And what you're doing is you're trying to make slices, some are bigger, some are smaller, that represent the different responsibilities that you have in your life. Some of those parts are, are big that says, well, this is the family section. I'm responsible for my family. This is a section where I'm responsible to my government and to the people that live in my nation. 
Um, this one is to my church over here. And then I have this huge one over here. It's all about that I'm responsible to my boss and, and to, to work. I have to give all that over to them as well. And thinking in these categories is okay. In fact, it's very helpful for us to make sure that we know where we should be putting some of our time and thinking it through. But this kind of thinking can tempt us to believe that tasks, some of these tasks, matter to God, and other ones don't really matter that much to God. I have to render this service to these people in that part, but over here, I'm really concerned about rendering this service to God. When we think about it that way, unfortunately, we start making a divide that's not actually there. Because we start to think that there's some things that are really good to do, and then there's just other things that we all have to do. That's just the way it is. We have to work. We've got to do these things. This is a famous divide called the sacred-secular divide. The belief that certain tasks can be more godly or sacred, while other ones are just earthly and secular. We often think that when we're doing the earthly stuff, the secular stuff, that it's a necessary part that really doesn't count for much. But we know we got to do it. However, unfortunately, well, I'll say this. Often we think about work this way. We think about it in this divide. We think that turning in monthly reports and labeling certain bins at work and making sure you respond to the emails that you were sent and signing up for time slots to get your HR stuff all worked out, all that stuff is meaningless and it doesn't matter for the kingdom of God. Why would I even talk about that? It doesn't really matter. It's just not that important. That kind of secular functional work doesn't matter to God. Let me read you a quote from a Christian theologian, A.W. Tozer. He said this, It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. Now listen again. It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. And I think he's exactly right. He's making the point that Paul is right here. Paul is teaching us that our work is not something that is to be judged and rewarded only by earthly masters. No longer are we to concern ourselves with the good or the bad that a boss can do to us only. Our work is important and meaningful because it's under the all-seeing eye of God. I'm, I'm, I just want you to think about this. Paul set this up this way. In verse 5, he talked about earthly masters, right? Guess who he talks about in verse 9? The master that is in heaven. Earthly master, heavenly master. He talks about eye service and man-pleasing or people-pleasing. How foolish when you and I can only see uh, certain things and our bosses can only see per certain parts of our lives that we would live to please them somehow when we know that the all-seeing eye of God never sleeps, never misses anything, understands the work that we do and sees every part of it. And therefore, our work must be directed to the one who sees all of our work and will ultimately reward it. I, I really love this because it's almost as if Paul is transforming every difficult or mundane task that we do into an opportunity for godliness and obedience. It's beautiful. It takes the things that we do every day and it makes it about Christian discipleship. It matters. Think about the whole passage in light of the way that this last phrase said, you know, uh, this thing that we're talking about. We're trying to answer the question, who is the Christian working for? He starts out by saying fear and trembling, right? That's the way we're supposed to work. What human deserves the reaction of fear and trembling? We already talked about some of the bosses that we've worked for. 
why would we treat them as the Old Testament treats someone who goes before God? That's how their posture is, to respond in fear and trembling. Why would we do such a thing? Your boss may not deserve honor or respect. Why would you give it to them? Well, first you would give it to them because God has placed him or her in this role of authority. But because of our obedience and respect, also our fear and trembling is ultimately to be aimed at God himself. So we recognize that we have an earthly master and it's important for us to submit and obey that master. But it has to be done in a certain way because they're not the final master. They're in a sense an under-shepherd, an under-master, one who's been given authority over us. Our ultimate obedience is always to King Jesus, always. Think about the number of times that he's told us that our obedience is to be connected with our relationship to Christ. In verse five, bond servants are to be are, are to obey as you would Christ. In verse six, we aren't to be people pleasers, but bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He, he calls your work the will of God. That is awesome. Do you understand that like taking the trash out is the will of God? It's that, that really transforms the way that you can do your work because it may seem like a mundane task and yet to the God of the universe, it is good and it is righteous and it is something that pleases him. In verse seven, we are to render our service willingly as to the Lord, not to men. In verse eight, we know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back, not from our earthly bosses, from the Lord. So we get to the end here, we're seeing that Paul's ethic and perspective are clear. The Christian is to work as unto the Lord. We saw, um, uh, we saw that read for us right before. Ben read those verses showing that we are allowed to work heartily as unto the Lord. He's saying, in a sense, the exact same thing, that our true master is Christ. Now, I'm pretty, par- I'm pretty far in here, and we haven't gotten to the second relationship, or the second part of this relationship, the master. But you will quickly see uh, that we are only slightly shifting topics. You'll see what I mean. Let's read verse 9 together. Paul says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I mean, what a strange command. I wrestled with those for a long time this week, trying to figure out what does the command mean, do the same to them. I mean, is it that masters are to obey their bond servants? Is that what he is saying here? No, he's not saying that. Excuse me. As I said at the beginning, Paul's command to obey is not strange or different compared to the other authorities that surround people in this age. Uh, what is different is the fact that they are to obey their masters because of the lordship of Jesus and with a different master in mind than only just the one in front of them. Their obedience is shaped by the all-seeing eye of God. So when Paul says masters do the same to them, He is telling them to adopt the same ethic and perspective as the bondservants. The way that you're to obey is the way that you are to lead. The way that they are supposed to obey and submit to masters, in a sense, the way that they're supposed to do that as unto Christ, you should be referencing the same exact set of doctrines and things that you ought to be doing your job unto. Those are the ways that you ought to be doing it. It's a given that, obviously, we know this, you must lead and take care of your workers. Uh, and, and truthfully, every master will gladly do that because it's in his best interest. But what he is saying is bigger than that. Paul applies the same ethic and perspective to the masters that he did to the servants. They are to see all of their work and service and labor as unto the Lord, 
None of their work, think about this, same things. None of their work goes unseen. But because masters are the ones who are given authority and power, and what we all have noticed in all three of these relationships about that abuse, Paul makes a statement here. He says, stop your threatening. Uh, If you know anything about classical literature, or if you like to study politics, or if you like to study leadership, you have probably heard of a little book called The Prince by Machiavelli. Very old book, famous in a sense, um, but we are met with a very interesting perspective about leadership, about being one who rules and has authority. In chapter 17, I want you to listen. He says, related to this question, to this, a question arises. Whether it be better to be loved than feared or feared than love. In other words, as a leader, do you want to be feared or loved? I got someone who sent me that Michael Scott quote, you know, I want people to be so afraid of how much they love me. That's not the point here. Machiavelli is dealing with the issue whether or not a leader ought to be loved or feared. And he says this, It may be answered that one should wish to be both, but because it is difficult to unite them in one person, it is much safer to be feared than loved when only one is possible. Love is preserved by a link of gratefulness, which, owing to the weak nature of men, is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by a fear of punishment which never fails. In other words, love and fear are both useful when leading, but because men are sinful and looking out for their own preservation and don't want to be punished, he'll be more effective, this thing, the prince will be more effective if he leads one who is fe- leads by one who is feared. And, and many abuses have come from this idea. It's very common to use this tactic and to use threats that which would keep our people afraid of us and not want to step out of line. But Paul condemns this. Threats are manipulative and ungracious. They are meant to control and force people to do things that they do not wish to do. Paul is saying that a Christian master must lead and serve his people in every proper way without the use of these sinful threats. Now, we know that warning and discipline is something that Scripture shows is right. So he's not saying don't warn or don't you know, use discipline. He's saying these threats that are meant to keep people in their places with fear, to manipulate people and do what you want them to do. He goes on to say, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Uh, he's saying you may be able to use these threats and get away with it here, where no one else sees it, it doesn't matter. But guess what? You have a boss who's in heaven. And it's the same boss that your, your workers have. It's the God of the heavens. You, master, and your servant have the same Lord in heaven. And get this, he does not show partiality to the ones who have been given authority. He doesn't give masters a free ride. He doesn't show favor to them. He will judge and reward them for their works. Thus we come to the end of the household code understanding that the masters must be very careful to have the same ethic and the same perspective as the workers and that they would do the job that God has put them into well and properly, that they would be true Christian bosses or masters or lords. And so we come to the end of this household code and see that both of these roles are God-given and they are important. 
Each must obey the instruction of Paul as a spirit-filled Christian submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the call to us is clear. We get to the end here. Whether you're a sailor in the Navy or whether you're a housewife responsible for the care of your home, each and every Christian is responsible to work to the Lord. Your work is a beautiful picture of submission and is effective as obedience to Christ. These things are, are life-giving, and we recognize that all of life, then, is worship and obedience. Servants, obey your masters. Masters, lead. Both of you operate on this ethic in the perspective that God is your final master. Both of us are called to do, the, you know, to, to, to do this with a vastly different perspective and ethic than the humans around us that don't trust Christ, what they do. We're called to this perspective. So I'll say this finally. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and obey the instructions that Paul has given us here for these roles, we will reflect the truth about God's design for creation. We will see these relationships work. And most importantly, each believer will therefore proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ in their obedience in these relationships. So let us embrace the roles that God has put us in. If you are a wife, embrace it. If you're a child, embrace it. If you're a husband or a master, embrace it. These are God-given roles. Obey what Paul has told us here. Give honor to God himself. So let us embrace these roles and work under the Lord, depending then on him for strength and stamina as we labor in this world. Let's pray together. Oh God, only you can work repentance and faith in our hearts. Only you can work true obedience. You have given us righteousness in Jesus Christ. Your Holy Spirit has been promised to us to mature us to the fullness of God. And I pray for us, our own body, that you would honor yourself and glorify yourself through the obedience of your children. I ask, Lord, that you would, according to the riches that you have in Jesus Christ would grant us to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner beings. Lord, have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, we are, we are already rooted and grounded in love, but would we have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Lord, would you fill us with the fullness of God. And I pray, Lord, to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To you alone be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.